Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I'm Michael Kingswood, a retired submarine officer. I'm also a private pilot, martial artist, engineer, and a lifelong fan of science fiction and fantasy. I've written and published dozens of stories across the entire spectrum of speculative fiction. So sit back, let your mind wander through realms of adventure as I tell you a story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood back at you again with story time. Been a pretty good week around here in the Kingswood abode. Um, nothing really super unusual going on, just a normal week, and which uh, sometimes is better than than uh, than you can expect otherwise, right? Because uh, occasionally things get weird. But not this week though. This week uh, pretty much on schedule. A bunch of good times with the uh, family and at work. And now it's time to read for you again. Uh, so this week, uh, we're going to do another longer one. Uh, not quite as long as the Dragon Slayer story I read a couple weeks ago. That one was about 10,500 words. This one is about 9,800 words. So it's, you know, what is that? It's about, you know, a few minutes shorter than that one. Uh, novelette length called Facilitated Interrogation. Conceit is that the main character is a, is a doctor who works sort of with the FBI, sort of with yeah, a bunch of different law enforcement agencies, and uh, doing a, a new, completely approved, all the way up through the UN Human Rights Council, so you know it's got to be good, um, inter interrogation technique to, uh, to get prisoners to spill the beans without... Uh, quickly and without causing any harm or any real duress, or at least that's what they say, but it turns out she finds there's a little more to it than that, and there we go from there. Shocker, right? Uh, so hopefully you like it, and we'll uh, proceed on. It's, uh, I think it's kind of a fun little tale. See what you think. Back at you with it in just a second. Okay, facilitated interrogation. Two guesses who it's by. Let us begin. Drip. Kane squeezed his eyes shut and tried in vain not to hear. Drip. It was not real. This was not happening. Drip. Stop it! Drip. Think of something else. Anything else. Drip. 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 Kane tried to impose a melody from a little night music onto the sounds. They were coming in almost the right rhythm. Drip, drip. Damn it! He refused to cooperate. Drip. Was it over? Drip. Kane screamed. He screamed loudly until he ran out of breath, and then relished the fact that he could only hear himself panting. Gradually, his breathing returned to normal. For a moment, he thought he, maybe he had escaped. Drip. Oh, Lord, please help. Please! Drip. No more, Lord, please, no more. Drip. Make it stop. Drip. Thud. The scream that followed overpowered Kane's earlier feeble attempt. No human being could scream like that, that loudly and for that long. On and on it continued, threatening to shatter Kane's eardrums and leave him deaf and alone. Then, all at once, the scream cut off in a gurgling choke that seemed to drag out forever. Silence. Kane sobbed in relief. Drip. Dr. Luisa Melendez leaned forward from her waist and brushed a lock of her dark brown, almost black hair away from her eyes. Through the plexiglass window in front of her, she could see the subject. A man in his mid-forties, Caucasian, about 15 or 20 pounds overweight, with seeding brown hair and a scruffy beard. He lay strapped down to the facilitation table, secured by restraints on his wrists, ankles, waist, chest, and forehead. He was nude except for a white cloth that had been placed over his private area. His body twitched from time to time, straining against the restraints. Embedded in the plexiglass, a holographic image of his face from a camera in the ceiling directly above him showed his eyes, wide open and darting to and fro, seemingly at random. His mouth gaped open and shut rapidly, and he had a look of absolute fright on his round, chubby face. Another hologram below the image of his face showed his name, Chesterton. Kane R. 
Bernard spoke from where he sat at the facilitation technician station to Luisa's left. Respiration and heart rate are up by 10% for baseline. Luisa looked sidelong at him. African-American, with shoulder-length hair done up in a multitude of small braids that almost but not quite resembled dreadlocks, he wore a lab coat over jeans and a red polo shirt. He squinted at the display in front of him, more holograms embedded in the plexiglass that showed the subject's vital signs and the input settings for the neural shunt that overrode the subject's sensory responses. Mr. Chesterton would see, hear, taste, touch, and feel only what they allowed him to, so long as he lay strapped to that table. You dialed it back to the resting state? Bernard nodded, and he's still elevated. Louisa smiled thinly, nodding to herself in satisfaction. She glanced up at the time display. 10.37, Friday, 22 April. This was shaping up to be a fast case. A few more hours of this, and Mr. Chesterton would be ready to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to his questioners. In the company of his attorney, of course. She turned to the man to her right, tall, two or three inches above six feet. He had broad shoulders and a heavily muscled chest, square jaw on an equally square, clean-shaven face, and close-cut black hair that was starting to go gray at the temples. There were squint lines around his gray eyes and frown lines around his mouth. He wore a plain navy blue suit and black tie and white collared shirt, the sort of outfit that screamed FBI. Looking good, Agent Gomez, Louisa said. They'll be singing for you in time for happy hour. Gomez nodded quickly. Excellent. Louisa turned back to her displays, checking them over one last time. Then she nodded again. Take it to level two. Will do. Bernard adjusted some settings on his controls. In the room beyond the observation window, Chesterton jerked more forcefully against his bonds. What'd this guy do, anyway? You know I can't discuss the case, Mr. Samuelson, said Agent Gomez in a disapproving tone. The guy has rights. You just get him softened up and leave the rest to us. Luisa reached out to turn the tactile gain down a bit. No sense overloading him, not yet. Relax, Agent Gomez, she said. Looking back at him, she gave him a playful wink. Have I ever let you down? Sure enough, the process got finished by 3 o'clock, and Luisa and Bernard were out the door in time for happy hour. They had made a tradition of sorts to get a beer together at the end of the week. It helped to unwind, and they had similar tastes in brew, so it worked out nicely. Coventry's pub lay a block away from the office building in southeast D.C. in the refurbished area around the Nationals' ballpark. There's everything you can want in a British-style pub, Dark wood finish all over, leather padded bar stools, deep leather seats at the tables, every sort of tasty ale or beer you could want on tap, and pub food in all its glory. Of course, they had the Union Jack hung up over the bar and soccer on the hollow screens. You did not want to be in here when Manchester United played Liverpool. But on a Friday afternoon, it was low key and relaxing. Louisa and Bernard made it there quickly enough without their lab coats, of course, and ordered their usuals. For him, Guinness. For her, Bass. Then they settled down at a table halfway back in the room. Thank God it's Friday, Louisa said and raised her glass. Bernard obligingly tapped his against hers, and they both drank up. Ten minutes later, Bernard had not said another word. He just sat there, sipping at his beer and staring off into space. Louisa frowned and leaned forward over the table toward him. Okay, what's up? You're sulking. Bernard made a little half-shrug and ran one finger along the rim of his glass. Does it ever bother you, what we do in there? Louisa leaned back in her chair and regarded him for a minute, trying to get a read on where he was going with this. He wasn't normally this pensive. What do you mean? I mean, doesn't it seem a bit... twisted? She chuckled softly and shook her head. Bernard gave her a direct look. What, you're serious? She rolled her eyes. Bernard, we're the good guys. All we're doing is help get to the truth faster and more efficiently. I mean, it's not like we're torturing these guys. She took another drink. He raised his eyebrows. Aren't we? Louisa swallowed quickly. No, she said, and set her glass back down on the table. It struck the wood with a solid thud, and she realized she had slammed it a bit harder than she intended. She took a deep breath. Look, this thing's been studied to death. I know. It's been run up through all the courts. The ACLU bought off on it. Bernard rolled his eyes at that. Christ, even the UN Security Council on Human Rights approves the process. What more do you want? Bernard snorted loudly. UN? You mean the International Brotherhood of Ten-Horned Dictators? Louisa, fucking North Korea was on the Human Rights Council when they made that ruling. Well, she had to admit he had a point there. If it bothers you so much, why do you still work here? Bernard picked up his glass. That's a question I've been asking myself a lot late, 
he trailed off, his eyes moving from her face to something behind her. He mouthed, oh shit, silently said, hey, don't look now, but here comes your ex. A moment later, Louisa felt a hand come to rest on her right shoulder. She looked up to see a man of about six feet. His roguishly handsome face was capped by blonde hair that looked as though it had been professionally styled. He wore a light gray suit that looked tailor-made, with a blue tie that set off his eyes nicely, and a white-colored shirt. A gold watch was on his left wrist, and he carried a shot glass in his right hand filled with, unless she missed her gets, scotch. Top-shelf scotch, of course. Bernard, the man said jovially. Louisa, Richard, Bernard said, nodding and greeting. What's new? Richard took his hand off Louisa's shoulder and moved around to stand more fully between them. Oh, the usual, you know, fighting the forces of evil, he smiled, smiling broadly before he took a sip of his scotch. I hear you're some kind of high-up muckety-muck these days. Richard weighed off Bernard's remark with a false show of modesty. Special counsel to the Deputy Assistant Attorney General. Which meant he was probably one of a hundred mid-level underlings, but it sounded impressive enough. But, he said, I think I'll be moving up again pretty soon. Bernard's eyebrows rose. Oh, yeah? Big case in the works? Well, Louisa cut him off. Richard went to Cornell with the new guy. She smiled sweetly at him. He's hoping for a bit of nepotism. Richard looked at her askance, but before he could say anything, Bernard piped up. They're really tearing into your boy in the confirmation hearings. Richard waved a dismissive hand. They have to do that, part of the act, but it's all in the bag. He grinned again, but his gaze left them, meandering toward the door. Well, I'll have to say in chat, it looks like Kim's here. He nodded in Bernard's direction. Bernard, then he turned to Louisa and gave her shoulder a little squeeze. Louisa, great seeing you again. After he had departed, Bernard shook his head. Never knew what you saw in that guy. Louisa turned her head to look back over at Richard and Kim. He has his moments. Kim was a leggy blonde, almost as tall as Richard and heavy in the bosom department. She wore a conservative gray sports coat and matching skirt that went almost to her knees, a white-collared shirt, and two-inch heels. Like she needed to be any taller. The two of them walked to the far end of the bar, and Richard pulled out a stool for her. They began chatting up a storm, leaning in towards each other like besotted teenagers. She's an attorney, too, isn't she? Louisa nodded. K Street. He, she could hear Bernard's eyes roll. Must burn you up, him getting remarried so soon. She turned back to him and shook her head. Honestly, I'm happy for him. We're much better apart than we were together. Bernard gave her a level look. It's not what you were saying six months ago. She chose not to answer that. Bernard looked at the time and winced slightly. Then he downed the last of his Guinness in one gulp. Well, he said, pushing his chair back, I hate to drink and run, but I have it eight. Really? Louisa felt her eyebrows lifting, and she grinned at him. With whom? Her name's Kelly, and she plays bass, he said. He grinned. Her band's playing at the House of Blues tomorrow night if you want to come. Louisa shook her head. Wouldn't want to crimp your style. Come on, he said, spreading his hands theatrically. I got no style to cramp. She shook her head again in amusement this time and chuckled. See you Monday. Louisa strode into the facilitation control room Monday morning, just itching to talk to Bernard. Between his date and what she had seen on the news feed this morning, she didn't know where to begin. Her eyes swept past the plexiglass observation window and the control stations below it to the server racks that were the heart of the system, to the plain wooden desk that sat against the rear wall, and she grinned. Morning! Bernard looked up from where he stood next to the server rack. He wore his usual lav coat over khakis and a blue-collared shirt, and held the clipboard in his left hand, the pre-startup checklist, no doubt. He did not look happy. Either the date had gone poorly, or he was talk taking the news hard. Better not to press the date, if that was the problem. Louisa stuffed her hands into her pockets of her lab coat and casually moved toward him. Man, this has been a bad year for your team, Bernard. He frowned, and she shook her head. Senator Robert Thompson, Republican, Pennsylvania, arrested over the weekend for involvement in a human trafficking and sex trade operation. Tisk tisk. Bernard's frown became a scowl. It's bullshit is what it is. Louisa couldn't help it. She laughed. Oh, come on, that's six senators gone in, what, 18 months? I know you're a Republican. Honestly, I think it's kind of funny that you are. But seriously, even you have to see that he rounded on her, his nostrils flaring. What's so funny about it? He demanded loudly, very near shouting. He was gripping the keyboard stiffly, and his right hand had made a fist, so hard that the pencil he was using to mark the checklist 
snapped between his fingers. What, black man's not allowed to have his own opinions about things? He's just supposed to blindly check next to D at every election because his masters say so? Is that it? Whoa! Louisa took a step back and raised her hands, palms open between Bernard and herself. They had been teasing each other over politics for years, but he had never reacted like this before. Where did that come from? Bernard gave a little jerk and took a breath, then visibly relaxed. He looked abashedly at her for a second, then turned away toward the desk at the back of the room. Sorry, I'm just tired of being called an Uncle Tom for how I vote. He trailed off as he set the broken pencil down atop the desk and opened one of the desk drawers to get another. Look, it's not about politics. He went to the facilitator's technician station below the observation window and sat down in his chair, then began checking off more items on his list. He glanced back at her, no doubt feeling her astonished gaze on him. I know the guy, okay? No way he did what they're saying. Well, that was unexpected, and it piqued her curiosity. She walked over beside him. You know Senator Thompson? She tried not to sound incredulous, but did not succeed completely. Bernard checked off another item on the list and stopped. He sighed and put the pencil and clipboard down on the control panel, then swiveled in his chair to look at her. Yeah, he and my dad were in the Army together during the war. When that got out, he settled down in Pittsburgh. He managed a small grin. I practically grew up at his house. We watched the ball games there, barbecued there. When he ran for state senate, my dad helped with his campaign. He half chuckled. Hell, I lost my virginity to his daughter, for Christ's sake. So yeah, I knew him. Louisa's eyebrows rose high onto her forehead. Really? That was very interesting. You fuck Senator Thompson's daughter? Bernard looked askance at her for a second, then grinned sheepishly and gave a little shrug. Well, yeah. She grinned at her best impish grin at him. You know, that is pretty awesome. Bernard burst out laughing, and Louisa followed suit. After a short while, he got a hold of himself and nodded. Yeah. And his eyes went a bit distant. Yeah, he said more softly, a bit wistfully. It was pretty great. He gave himself a shake. That's not the point. He's a stand-up guy. Family man. Totally straight-laced. No way he did that shit. He pointed at her with his index finger. It's a setup job, I'm telling you. Louisa raised her hands. You say so. How long has it been since you saw him last? Bernard frowned thoughtfully. I guess, uh, right after I graduated high school? So about ten years. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've seen him a few times at the holidays, but never like before. Louisa sighed. People can change a lot in ten years. She made a sweeping gesture with her left hand. Especially in this town. Not that much. She gave him a level look. Bernard, all joking aside, he's a politician. Doesn't matter which party he belongs to, they're all crooked. You know that. Bernard's eyes lowered sadly, and he turned his chair back to the control panel. Yeah, well, he was one of the good ones, he paused. Or at least I thought so. Louisa laid her hand on his shoulder. Sorry. Well, he said, straightening up and grabbing the clipboard again. They're almost done in there. We better get ready. Louisa, Louisa was going to ask about his date, but glanced into the facilitation room and she saw he was right. The two techs within were just finishing hooking up the last of the leads to this day's subject, a thin Asian woman who looked to be about 30. But then, with Asian women, Louisa really couldn't tell. They tended to age so well. One of the techs gave a thumbs-up sign, and Louisa returned it with a wave. Then the techs left through the door in the, in the facilitation room. Something Bernard said earlier came back to mind. People really give you shit for being a black Republican? He looked up from the checklist and rolled his eyes. You have no idea. Then he went back to what he was doing. A couple minutes later, the door to the control room clicked, and Louisa turned to see a short blonde woman walk into the room. She was heavy, but not fat, more like she had muscles and a bit of padding. She wore a dark blue pantsuit and a very light blue shirt beneath, and a severe expression on her face. She nodded in Louisa's direction. Dr. Melendez? Louisa smiled in return. Agent Hopkins! She turned to her left and gave Bernard a meaningful look. He checked the last block on his checklist and gave her a nod. Louisa turned back to the FBI agent. Ready when you are. Let's get started. Two weeks later, Bernard quit. On Monday, he was at work like normal. The two of them went about their business as they always did, talked as they always did, joked. On Tuesday, he was gone. Louisa walked into the facilitation control room to find a different technician running through the startup checklist, a chubby blonde girl, who could not have been older than 20, maybe 22. When she saw Louisa, she grinned and stood up. Hi, I'm Shelly, your new tech. Shelly extended her hand for a shape. Louisa looked at her in shock. What happened to Bernard, she said. It took her a second to register the girl's hand as she flushed. Sorry, it's nice to meet you. She shook hands with the girl, who surprisingly had a firm grip. 
Shelley raised an eyebrow at her. Didn't he tell you he was quitting? No. No, he had not. The rest of the week, that lack ate at Louisa. Surprise turned to confusion, then to hurt, and finally to anger. They had worked together for three years. Sure, they were not bosom buddies, but they had become friends in that time. Aside from that one conversation at Coventry's, he never even hinted that he was thinking about quitting. And he certainly hadn't told her he was actually going to do it. What the hell? Felt like a betrayal, silly as that sounded even to herself. But by the end of the week, Louisa was flat out furious with him. His text, coming during her lunch break on Friday, only made her angry. Coventry's, 7 o'clock. Yeah, like she was going to obey his summons. Who do you think he was, running out on her, then expecting her to just come at his beck and call? It was just like, just like... She had to take a deep breath to calm herself before she threw her mobile across the room. Bernard wasn't Richard. He hadn't run out on her. He had left the job. Nothing more. It wasn't worth getting angry over. That didn't help as much as she thought it would have. She almost didn't go, but as the minutes ticked down until the time she would have to leave to meet him, she found she could not say no. At the very least, she would make him explain why he hadn't even told her he was leaving. She deserved that much after all the time they'd spent together. She found him seated at a table in the back corner of the pub, shielded from view from the front door by the curvature of the bar. He wore a light leather jacket over a dark t-shirt and faded jeans, and he had bagged bags under his eyes as though he had not been sleeping. He smiled slightly when she approached, and stood. Glad you came. Louisa shot him a glare that carried all of the conflicted emotions she'd been feeling the entire week, and he blanched. He gestured toward the empty chair at his table and sat back down. She took a moment to remove her own jacket, a lot way to fare, for the evening's chill, and set it over the chair's back before sitting down herself. So you quit, she said, intentionally putting an accusation in the tone. Bernard didn't react to her tone. He leaned forward over the table and fixed her with a look that was all seriousness. Yeah, I'm leaving town tonight, as soon as we're done here. His eyes flicked away from her toward the pub's entrance. I think someone's been following me. That brought Louisa up short. Anger turned to confusion, and she sat speechless for a moment. Why would someone be following him? That didn't make any sense. Bernard either didn't notice confusion on her face or didn't care, because he kept right on going. Wanted to warn you before I left. There's some serious shit going down here, and you need to get out of that place, too. What are you talking about? Have you had a breakdown or something? This is not like him at all. Remember how I told you Senator Thompson was set up? Good lord, not this again. She could understand him being upset about it, but seriously... She kept her voice carefully level. Yeah, I found proof. Proof? Proof of what? He shook his head. I don't have time to explain, and you wouldn't believe me if I did. But he was set up, and we helped do it. He narrowed his eyes at her. You and me. You're nuts. Louisa pushed her chair back and made her stand up. She didn't need to listen to this. He needed help is what he needed, but he shot his hand across the table and grabbed her by the left wrist in a vice-like grip, preventing her from pulling away. Let go of me! They came out in a shout, and eyes from around the room turned the rest on them. Bernard recoiled and released her wrist, looking about with uncertainty. The other patrons watched them for several seconds before going back to their business. When they had, he said, Sorry, please just listen to me. He sounded tired, but also determined and, no kidding, scared. And there was a pleading look in his eyes that made Louisa sit back down again. But she didn't scoot her chair back into the table, and she kept her hands resting together on her lap. Okay, spill it. He took a deep breath. Facilitation does something to people. More than we thought. More than anyone's been told. It makes them say or do things, and he trailed off and shook his head. Look, I can't explain it. I'm not even sure what it does. But I do know it was used to help set up the senator, and we did it. He took his jacket and took out a slip of paper. He set it down atop the table and slid it across to her. What's this? took a quick breath. It's the username and password to a backdoor access from our facility into the Justice mainframe. It'll give you access to case files. Louisa's breath caught in her throat. What? Incredulity and no small amount of fright flooded into her. This was a serious breach of security. What in the hell had he done? Where'd you get that? Bernard shook his head. It's not important. He leaned forward again. What's important is what's in those case files. Look for yourself. He slid his chair back and stood up, then glanced quickly around the pub before looking back at her. I'll be in touch. Be careful, he said, and do not use that from your office terminal. He stepped away from the table toward the small hallway leading back to the bathrooms in the pub's kitchen, and the back door, no doubt.
Wait, Louisa said, and he stopped, looking back at you. What are you going to do? I'm going to go help clear Senator Thompson's name. She should have thrown out that scrap of paper. All weekend long, she thought about it. She took it out of the little drawer in her desk and went home where she put it and stared at it. Several times she crumpled it up to throw it in the trash, but she always ended up flattening it out again. Keeping it was trouble. Big trouble. But she couldn't get the look on Bernard's face out of her head. What he told her was crazy. Certifiable. But at the same time, he had seemed so certain. So fearful. He discovered something, that was for certain. Something that had scared him enough to make him take off. Could he be right? Nah, that was preposterous. But all the same, on Monday morning when she went into work, that little scrap of paper rested in the bottom of Louisa's purse, just waiting for her to take it out and make use of it. It wasn't until Wednesday that she got up to the nerve to actually do it. She brought a bag of lunch and begged out of going out with her other colleagues, claiming a new budget plan. When most of them had gone, out to the deli down the street, she slipped out of her office and down to a small room at the rear of the building that housed a trio of workstations, one secure and two unclassified, and a printer. It was supposed to be used by visiting officials from other agencies so they could access their email and information portals while visiting the facilitation lab. But she and her colleagues often used it for unofficial business, like booking flights for vacation and the like, things that they, strictly speaking, weren't supposed to do from their work terminals. The bosses looked the other way at using the spare room for those purposes. No harm, no foul. That lax attitude suited Luisa's needs perfectly. She slipped into the room and shut the door behind herself, then sat down at the secure workstation, which conveniently was positioned caddy corner from the door, so she would have a second or two to back out of anything incriminating should someone else walk in. Then she drew a deep breath and pulled out Bernard's scrap of paper. It worked like a charm. Within moments, she was in the Justice Department's criminal database. But not just anywhere within the database. This place was bordered in yellow and marked top and bottom with top secret slash slash Omicron. That made her pause, and she almost turned off the workstation right then and there. But she'd come this far, and it would nag at her forever if she didn't see it through. Luisa looked around the page for a clue as to where to begin. At first, she was overwhelmed by the sheer number of links and choices she could make, each one presumably leading deeper into a top-secret maze. But she finally found a little hyperlink on the left side of the page that brought her to a research function. She typed in Senator Thompson's name and pressed enter. Only well, took a minute of paging through the file to see what had set off Bernard. The senator had been named by an accomplice who had revealed his involvement after facilitated interrogation. The accomplice's name was Kane R. Chesterton. That didn't make any sense. They conducted Chesterton's facilitation the Friday before Thompson had been arrested, and from what the file had said earlier, Louisa paged back and confirmed it. Yes, he'd been under investigation for a month before Chesterton took the FBI to him. So, what prompted the investigation? She frowned deeply as she scanned the file. There was evidence found on Thompson's computer that corroborated Chesterton's story, and mysterious money had been deposited into the senator's account. But the first instance of the deposit was the week before his arrest, on Friday. That was awfully coincidental. She closed the file and pulled up Chesterton's. The man had been booked three days before his facilitation on charges of identity theft? What did that have to do with human trafficking? Louisa's frown grew, as did her confusion. That didn't make any sense. No judge would have issued a warrant for a U.S. Senator's arrest for something this flimsy. There had to be more to the story. Her eye caught a tab at the top right of the screen marked Public. She clicked it. A different file opened, though it had all of Chesterton's vital information in it. This file lacked the classification markings of the first and told a totally different story. A story of FBI surveillance going back for months, of over two dozen underage girls and boys found in a prison house in the basement of a building that Chesterton had been observed entering and leaving repeatedly, of the raid that exposed it all the week before Thompson had been arrested, and of Chesterton's facilitated interrogation that linked the center, Senator. Two case files, one for the public, and the other, the truth. Louisa's throat clenched. She could hardly breathe. The shock of what she was seeing was so great. 
This could not be real, could it? Could it? She went back to Thompson's file, and sure enough, there was a public version of his as well, of a last-minute investigation after he was named, and a hurried warrant issued before the senator came back in the session, and the constitutional provision forbidding a member of Congress's arrest could take effect. Because if they had waited, he could have fled, of course. The chill that went down Louisa's spine was more like a dip in a polar seawater. This, this was... She swallowed, despite her throat being suddenly dry, and recalled what she had taunted Bernard with before. Six senators in 18 months. Five more searches confirmed it. All five had been arrested during congressional recesses, of course. All had been named by other dependents under facilitated interrogation. And all had been under extensive secret investigation beforehand, but the evidence presented against them bore no resemblance to anything shown in the secret files. Holy shit, she breathed. Voices outside in the hall made her almost jump out of the chair. She glanced at the time. Lunch hour was just about over. She thought over her for a second, then printed out all the files she had seen, public and private. No way was she going to use that username and password again, but she wanted to be able to go over what she had found again later. If only to prove to herself that she had not gone insane. Louisa did not sleep well that night. She sat at her desk at home, reading and rereading the files she printed out, trying to find any way around the conclusion that she had come to. To no avail. Finally, well after weariness forced her to bed, she found herself lying in the darkness, her brain awhirl with the implications of what she had found. When she eventually dozed off, sometime deep in the wee hours of the morning, the blaring of her wake-up alarm interrupted a fitful slumber after what seemed only a few minutes. She went through the motions at work the next day. Fortunately, there were no facilitation subjects on the schedule. She was not sure she could have actually performed the procedure, and, and not just because of her fatigue. After what she had just learned, she drifted off at her desk several times, despite multiple cups of coffee, and by the end of the day had accomplished next to nothing. And there was a scheduled facilitation tomorrow. A chill went up her spine, and her stomach clenched in revulsion when she saw the schedule. She, she couldn't go through with it. Her supervisor's reaction when she begged off work the next day due to sickness was telling. He gave her a quick look up and down and nodded grimly. Yeah, you look like hell. Don't worry about tomorrow. Murphy can handle it. He's qualified for a month now. He's been chopping the bit to do one. Go take care of yourself. We'll see you Monday. So she left early, making a beeline for home. That evening, she went over the files again, somehow hoping that they would contain something different. But again, they did not. And again, the implication struck her hard. After the last election, the Democrats had firm control of the House, but the Republicans, with 56 senators, had held up all the President's initiatives, not even allowing them to come to the floor, let alone proceed to a vote. She had complained bitterly on all the networks about their tactics, pointing out, rightly, that the American people had elected her for her grand visions of the future and the changes she had to make to get there. Louisa had been right there with her. The changes were needed, and they were right. And now, with the Senate down to 50-50, the Republicans can no longer obstruct the changes from going through. They had lost the majority position, thanks to the Vice President's tie-breaking vote, and could no longer dictate the Senate's docket. Sure, they could filibuster, but that tactic had been all but emasculated in recent years, and it was easy to get around. As a turn of events, Louisa would normally have greeted with enthusiasm. In fact, she had done just that until now. Elections were supposed to mean something. Even when she didn't like the results, they had to be respected. To blatantly, purposely subvert them like this, it was just one step away from pure dictatorship. She fell asleep on her couch and had nightmares of jackbooted thugs marching in lockstep down the streets to the sound of the president's campaign promises broadcast through loudspeakers that stood at each street corner. Friday morning, Louisa awoke feeling gravelly-eyed but more focused than she had the day before. Bernard was right. Clearly the facilitation had played a part in what was happening here, but what? She'd studied the process in medical school, and it was sound in every way. Otherwise, she would not have gone into the field. Had it been corrupted somehow? Had something been missed? She sat to her computer and pulled up every professional journal she had access to. After a few hours of searching, she found over a hundred articles about facilitated interrogation, stretching back over a decade. It's going to be a long weekend of reading. 
facilitated interrogation began as the brainchild of an obscure Ph.D. student from Caltech named Johann Ferguson. Down through the years, there had been talk of truth serums and the like, but few such things had actually worked, and those that did give results were unreliable or had bad side effects. Ferguson theorized it might be possible to lower or eliminate entirely a subject's capacity to lie through electrical stimulation directly to the central nervous system itself. By eliminating pharmacological effects, he claimed the process would be more efficient and more humane. His notion was, of course, ridiculed as impossible. And even if it were possible, it would be nothing short of brainwashing, mind control, or torture. Not something a man with any scientific ethics to speak of should pursue. But Ferguson was not dissuaded. What that said about his ethical upbringing was open to interpretation for quite some time until, to the astonishment of all, he claimed success in perhaps the most widely read Ph.D. dissertation of all time. Published 15 years ago, his paper set off a firestorm within the scientific community, and soon thereafter, throughout the rest of society. The same cries of mind control, the accusations of corruption, flew from every corner. But then, study after study confirmed his findings. His techniques could force truthfulness, and without unpleasant side effects. Every person who was subject to facilitation, despite their reactions on the facilitation table, reported no discomfort or trauma at all afterwards. The implications were profound, the applications of the technique obvious. Very quickly, Dr. Ferguson obtained venture capital from multiple firms, and within two years, his facilitation devices were being sold throughout the world to law enforcement agencies, courts of law, and other organizations of all kinds. Prosecutors found their conviction rates skyrocketing, while at the same time the number of cases overturned on appeal plummeted because all testimony was true beyond any doubt whatsoever Innocent men were hardly ever sent to jail anymore. It was a godsend. As Louisa read study after study, all of them backing up what she had always learned about facilitation, all of them in agreement about its soundness, she began to wonder whether she had just been imagining things. And maybe Bernard had as well. There could be other explanations for the discrepancies between the files she had seen. By the time she went to bed Saturday night with dozens of studies still to review, she had mostly convinced herself to just let it go. Bernard was just upset and overreacting to his old acquaintance's bad situation. Sunday morning dawned bright and clear with not a cloud in the sky. Louisa pushed herself out from under her covers and stretched, letting the sunlight stream in through her bender window warm her skin beneath the cotton t-shirt and baggy knit pants that she used as pajamas. It was going to be a beautiful day, perfect for a walk along the Potomac, maybe a visit to the rising giant over at Haynes Point, or to the cherry blossoms. They were not in bloom, but the basin there by the Jefferson Memorial was always lovely. She sighed and managed to smile, feeling the cares that had been plaguing her the last several days slip away, and she resolved not to waste this day on any more paranoia. After a long, hot shower, she donned a pair of dark blue stretchy pants, her favorite sports bra, and a wicking shirt that she had received for the last race for the cure, then went down to the kitchen. Two slices of bread in the toaster while her coffee maker brewed a cup filled the room with soothing aromas, and her spirits buoyed even more. No sooner did the toast spring up from out of the toaster than the telephone unit that was set into the wall rang. Louisa glanced at the clock. 8.30. Who'd be calling her at this hour on a Sunday? Frowning in curiosity, she stepped over to the phone and tapped the control pad beside it. An elderly black woman's face appeared on the screen. She was in her late 60s, with hair that had gone totally gray, almost white, and a pleasantly plump face with deep smile lines on either side of her mouth. Louisa recognized her at once, but she was not smiling now. Hello, Louisa, Bernard's mother, said in her warm, never-polite southern accent. She had been transplanted from Georgia, following Bernard's father north, from what Bernard had said. I'm sorry to disappoint you so early. Not at all, Miss Samuelson. What can I do for you? wonder if you know where Bernard is. He told me he was coming home almost a week ago, and I haven't heard from him since. Louisa's blood went to ice water, and she shook her head slowly, her muscles moving on autopilot as her mind reeled at the question. No, no, I haven't seen him in over a week. Mrs. Samuelson frowned deeply. Oh, Lordy, she sounded, sounding deeply concerned. Louisa put on a brave smile. I'm sure he'll be there soon, she lied. You know Bernard. He probably met a girl and got distracted along the way. Mrs. Samuelson sniffed in disapproval. If you hear from him, tell him to call me, please, dear. I will. After Mrs. Samuelson hung up, Louisa dropped into one of the chairs that surrounded her small breakfast table, 
all thoughts of the during the day forgotten. What happened to Bernard? Her toast forgotten, she grabbed the now full pot of coffee and strode purposely back into her office, where the printouts from the justice files lay atop her desk and the multitude of journal articles about facilitated interrogation waited. She never thought of calling the police. If he had been right, and he had not made it home as a result, the police could not help him. Calling them might actually make it worse. She needed to find corroboration, something to show his theory is more than just paranoid delusion. By three o'clock, she had it. A small article in a third-rate journal published three years ago and written by a researcher out of Denmark. He found that small modifications to the facilitated interrogation device could, if made exactly correctly, change the effects of the device from forcing truthfulness to inducing a state of complete openness to suggestion. It would leave the subject willing to swear to his dying day that what the facilitators told him to say was true, even after subsequent facilitation on the normal settings. It was a bombshell, torpedoing completely the notion of facilitation's effectiveness and safety. So why wasn't it followed up? Luis had never even heard about it before. If she had not been digging so deeply into it, she paged through the journal database and found one mention of the Denmark article from a trio of researchers in Cambridge. They lampooned the Denmark study, finding errors in composition and statistical analysis, and accused the author of confirmation bias because he had been skeptical about facilitation on many other occasions in the past. If this notion had any validity, they would have been selected for publication in a more reputable journal, and the trio were quick to point out that it had, in fact, been rejected by peer review on three occasions before finally being accepted in the RAG, as they called it. Louisa frowned and opened up the Denmark study and read it through again. She would have to spend some time analyzing it in detail to be sure, but offhand she didn't see the huge, glaring discrepancies that the trio accused it of. There did not appear to have been even a response from the man in Denmark in any of the literature either, and that was odd. The trio had made some fairly serious accusations, not the kind of thing that could just be ignored. Surely he would have wanted to defend his reputation, if not the results of the study. So why hadn't he? Ten minutes of Googling showed her why. Another small story almost buried in a local Copenhagen news outlet. The researcher had been killed in a hit-and-run car crash. Louisa pushed back from her keyboard, suddenly finding herself shaking all over as icy fear flooded through her. It was mad. It was ludicrous. But she was certain all the same. Someone had killed him to keep his findings out of the public. Killed him and maybe paid off the trio from Cambridge to denounce him. And now Bernard had vanished. Louisa shivered. She had to tell someone, but who? The media? Fox News would love to run the story. Democrats corrupting the judicial system, framing Republican senators, be right up their alley. I'd love it. Hell, they'd have to marry it to their daughters. But could she trust that they would really look into it and that they wouldn't just run to get headlines and be sloppy? She snorted. Not be sloppy. When had a journalist ever not been sloppy? Louisa stood and tensed her muscles to get the shiver under control. Then she tapped the phone control that was built into the top of her desk. A few short minutes later, the phone screen came to life, showing Richard's face. He blinked in surprise. Louisa, I, I didn't expect to hear from you today. Or at all, his expression said. Need to talk to you about something important, Richard. Can I come to your office tomorrow? His brow furrowed. What is it? I can't tell you over the phone, but it's important. He opened his mouth to talk, but she cut him off. Please, Richard. He paused for a long moment, then glanced over at something to his right before nodding. All right, come by at two. Thank you. He nodded, and the phone winked out. Richard's office lay on the fifth floor of the Justice Department headquarters. It was not a corner office, he didn't rank that high, and it wasn't particularly large. But he had a more than decent view of the surrounding buildings in the street below, and you could see a bit of green from a nearby park if you looked from the right angle. He met Luisa at his door, dressed as usual to the nines, in a dark gray suit and another power blue tie. His shoes were polished to a sheen, and his teeth seemed to be as well when he smiled in greeting. He made her feel decidedly underdressed, in jeans and a red t-shirt beneath her light leather jacket. Luisa, he said, gesturing for her to enter. He sounded as though he were greeting an old friend, not the ex he had left, not even a year ago. What can I do for you? She went into his office and took a seat in one of the two chairs there that sat before his desk, and he took a moment to close the door and sit down himself. They looked at each other in silence for a while, Louisa unsure how to even begin. 
She drummed her fingers on the folder lying on her lap, the folder that contained all of the evidence she had found for the conspiracy, or, or, or whatever it was. Richard raised an eyebrow at her quizzically. You might as well get to it. I've discovered something horrible, she said. Then it all came out in a rush. Everything from the secret database to what she found in the journals to the political ramifications of it all. She laid it all out, flapping the folder down on his desk and showing him each page in its turn. Finally, when she had it all said, she sagged back in her chair, feeling completely drained. Richard's draw had dropped open a minute into her dissertation. He only closed it about ten seconds after she finished. For about ten seconds more, he just looked at her, speechless. Then his eyes turned down to the documents on his desk. Jesus Christ, he said. She nodded emphatic agreement. Richard pressed his right palm down onto the pages as though they were going to fly away on their own if he did not. How'd you find all this out? She looked at him askance. Bernard, he found the back door to the database. His eyes narrowed. He knows about this too? Where is he now? I don't know. All of a sudden, the chair felt too cramped and she stood up, moving over to the window. She looked down at the people walking along the street below and shuddered. Richard, tell me I'm crazy. Please, this is all so unreal. And now Bernard's disappeared. She looked back at him and said more softly, I'm scared. Richard looked directly in her eyes and shook his head. I don't think you're crazy. For some reason, that made her feel better. She smiled, thankfully. Thank you. I didn't know where else to go. Who else to talk to about this? I thought about going to the press. Jesus Christ, no, Richard said, fairly jumping out of his chair. Don't do that. Louisa blinked. Why not? This needs to come out into the open. His lips compressed. She could see the wheels turning behind his eyes as he walked around his test to come, desk to come stand beside her. If you go to the press, one of two things will happen. One, he gestured at the evidence. If this is what, this is what you think it is, they'll go to ground and cover their tracks. They'll make Arthur Anderson look above board and transparent. Or two, if it isn't, it'll stir up a huge pile of scandal and innuendo that will tarnish the administration forever, no, and no matter if it wasn't true. But, and that's not all he said. It won't be hard for people to figure out who leaked this. You'll be ruined. She shook her head. No, there are whistleblower laws. Richard chuckled mirthlessly. <laughs> you think that will really stop it? They won't have to punish you or take any action that would trigger those laws. He stared hard into her eyes. All they'd have to do is discredit you. A few anonymous leaks about your job performance, maybe some rumors and innuendos about your character. Nothing could be traced back to anyone specific, but enough to ruin your reputation. Make it really hard for you to get any kind of decent job once you design to decide to resign your position. Louisa flinched away from his gaze, swallowing hard. She wanted to believe he was wrong, but she knew better. She'd seen that sort of thing happen more times than she could count. That icy ball of fear that had been growing in her gut all weekend ju just grew heavier, more frigid. So she stopped, the tremble in her voice giving her pause. She swallowed, squared her shoulders, and looked back at him. So what do we do? We, he said, don't do anything. You go back about your business and try not to draw attention to yourself. I will start an investigation. Quietly. This sort of thing has to be handled very carefully or we're both screwed and the country with us. He made a little smile, one that Louisa thought was supposed to look confidently determined. And maybe to someone who didn't know him as well as she did, it would, but she could see the uncertainty. The fear hiding behind the facade. You sure? I can help. He shook his head emphatically. You did the right thing bringing this to me. Now let the pros handle it. He smiled again, more genuinely this time. Trust me, this is what I do. He was right about that, at least. He had made his name at justice by taking on some powerful people in the past. But this was whole new territory, and they both knew it. Still, Louisa, Louisa couldn't think of who else she could go to. Or who else could do it. She nodded. Okay, thank you, Richard. He placed his hand on Luisa's shoulder and turned her toward the door. No, thank you. Now, I got a meeting in five minutes, and I better get cracking on this. She saw this dismissal for what it was, but he was right. It was best that she get out of there, and away from this, so he could do his job. That fear diminished, a glimmer of relief replacing it. It was out of her hands now, and she was glad to be getting away from it. Then we know what you find out? Richard's eyes twinkled mischievously, and he gave her a little wink. You'll be the first to know. Well, maybe you and... 300 million others. As she left his office, she could not help but chuckle. The door closed behind Louisa, and Richard went back to his desk. He sat down and stared at the documents she had brought. This was bad. Very bad. He rubbed at his temples as possibilities washed over him, none of them good. This was the sort of thing that could make a guy's career. 
Make it or make or break it beyond all repair. Investigation would be tricky at best, dangerous at worst, and if it would uncover oh, he shuddered he shivered. Richard turned it over and over in his mind, playing through his every possible course of action. In the end, it always wound up with his ass dangling in the breeze, vulnerable. No matter how he played it, he was going to need some top cover. He needed his decision. Richard stacked Luisa's papers and pushed them to the side, then tapped the controls to his phone. After a few seconds of electronic beeping, the image of a gray-haired woman appeared in the phone's display. Yes, Richard McCandless for the Attorney General. One moment. More waiting, and then his old friend appeared on the display. He had aged, but then they both had. But the Attorney General still retained that ambitious glimmer in his eyes that he always had. Richard, what's up? He took a deep breath. Caleb, you've got a serious problem, brother. Louisa took the escalator up from the King Street Metro Station, stepped out onto the sidewalk. She paused for a moment, breathing in the evening air before she turned and walked east toward the Potomac. Dusk had given way to full night, and the streets of Old Town Alexandria were thronged with people going about the business of D.C.'s nightlife. Mostly young people from the looks of it, from what she could see. But the scene was vibrant and healthy. Any other night, the sight of all these people just out for a good time would have lifted her spirits, but not tonight. Despite Richard's assurances, she could not help but feel a creeping dread as she turned off King Street and walked toward home. It was unthinkable what was going on if it really was going on. She gave herself a little shake and tried to force herself to stop dwelling on it. It was out of her hands now. Richard and his people could investigate, and if there really was wrongdoing, he would stop it and bring the bad guys to justice. That was why he went into law in the first place and why he took a position at justice. Richard was many things, but beneath his outer mask, he always had a firm desire to see wrongs righted. It's one of the things she admired about him. It was all going to be okay. Louisa arrived at her brownstone and paused, reaching into her purse to find her keycard. She had noticed the man standing in the shadows adjacent to her door until he spoke. Dr. Melendez. She froze, her heart racing immediately as she rotated her head to look his way. He was tall and bulky, wearing an overcoat, but his other features were obscured by the darkness, and she felt a sense of menace wafting from him. She, Louisa took a step back and opened her mouth to ask who he was. In that instant, someone pressed into her back, and a hand clamped over her face, pressing a rag over her mouth and nose. A sharp, metallic odor filled her nostrils, and she quickly grew lightheaded. She tried to pull away, but all the strength left her limbs. Her vision darkened and narrowed. As she lost consciousness, she heard the man say, You should have left it alone. Time passed. Could have been a day or five minutes, but she could not have said which if someone had held a gun to her head. All around was blackness and silence. She felt nothing. She smelled nothing tasted nothing. What was going on? She tried to move, but she could not tell if she was successful or not, because nothing changed. She could not even feel whether her arms and legs had responded at all. Silence. It stretched for a small eternity, and she thought for certain that she had gone insane. Drip. Drip. What was drip? Drip. 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 Realization hit her, and Louisa screamed. She screamed until she should have gone hoarse, but there was no feeling. She kept on screaming until she could not scream anymore. On the other side of the observation window, the facilitation technician started in surprise and consulted his readouts. Wow, that was fast. Standing at his side, his supervisor, a middle-aged man with thinning black hair atop a gaunt face, nodded. No kidding. He turned his head to the right and grinned. This one's not going to take long at all. In the back of the room, in his navy blue suit, white shirt, and black tie, Agent Gomez stood with his arms crossed over his chest. At the supervisor's words, the corners of his lips turned up ever so slightly. Excellent. Okay, so there's the story. Uh, I was a little off. I said I wrote this two years ago. I just double-checked. I wrote it almost exactly three years ago and finished it in March of 2015. Um... <laughs> it's interesting uh, reading it because, again, as usual, I haven't really looked at it uh, in a while. I tend to get stories done and then read them and proof them and get them packaged up and send out to, uh, for shorter stories, send them out to you know, magazines and publishing venues for a while until I go through them all, 
order for you know novels and stuff I don't bother with that uh, but after I do whether I send them out or not after all that's done I do one last pass to reproof it get all the cover work done all that stuff and put it up and I almost never look at them again uh, until I started doing this so like I said uh, I haven't really looked at this one in a while but man it actually uh, I think it holds up well and uh, certainly given events of the last few years you can tell where I was inspired from with it, right? There's all kinds of all the chicanery going on back with the IRS, back with uh, the 2012 campaign, and then just other things that keep coming up here and there from from both sides of the aisle. I mean, we don't even be go too political on this one, but there the chicanery and jackassiveness um, all throughout that swamp that is DC, and I know all about that swamp because I grew up there. Interestingly enough, it was built on a swampland, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Um, anyway, not exactly a cheerful ending to that particular story. Um, no apologies for that. I mean, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, I still kind of like it. Right, let me know what you think. Do you like it? Do you hate it? Drop me an email. You can... Uh, Contact form at my website, michaelkingswood.com, or you can find me on Twitter, though I'm almost never there, or Facebook, though I'm really not there that much these days either, because, God, I'm just starting to hate Facebook so much. I've been hating it more and more for the last several years now, but now I just can't even get on there without getting in a fight with somebody, or if they're not getting into a fight, it's just some stupid, bullcrap, meaningless memes flying around and everybody's just sort of grumpy and yeah, it was cool back in 08 and 09 when you could see your old high school buddies and talk about stuff and not have this uber algorithm you know control of what you're going to see back when it was just a straight feed of everybody you could see everybody and you could sort through it yourself that was when it was good the last few years where they were trying to control all the content more and especially now that they're you know Saying, giving the finger and putting the silencing button on anybody they don't that Facebook the company doesn't agree with um, now it's just baloney. I don't even know why I'm on there well I know I yeah I know why I'm still on there because you know you can, Facebook advertising can work pretty well for selling just about anything they've had some good results back in the past with uh, the mailing list built up a little bit and getting some sales on books and every now I keep telling myself I'm gonna go back and use it some more to uh, once to get get you know sales push on books a lot more, but I haven't. I keep asking, keep wondering if I'm gonna. But regardless, I'm still there because I'm holding that 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 thought out. Anyway, so long story short, you you can find my page there. I may or may not be on, so if you contact me through there, it might be a while before I get back to you. Um, but, you know, website's the best way to reach me. You can also see, see me on Steemit. You can get me, obviously, on YouTube and the podcast. And I uh, go from there. Uh, if you like my stuff, if you like the story, pick up a copy, right? SSNStorytelling.com is my web store. You can find that and every other book that I've put out there, as well as audiobooks that uh, I'm able to sell there. They aren't exclusive. They're audible um, there. And all the money goes to me, like 90 to 95% of it. As opposed to, um, if you're going through these other places, I get anywhere from 40 to 70%. So, much better for me if you go to my web store. But if you want to go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon or Kobo or all those other places, you can go there too. If you would rather not do that because you already know how the store goes, that's cool. Send me a tip or go to Patreon and become a patron. Um, either way, uh, thanks for listening in. Tell everybody about the podcast and the videos. Tell everybody about my stories if you like them. If you hate them, but like me, <laughs> tell everybody anyway. Uh, the more, the merrier. Um, yeah, drop me a line, then we'll show, know what you think. And we'll see you again next week. Until next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. That'll do it for this episode of Storytime with Michael Kingswood. Come by my website, michaelkingswood.com, for information about my work. There you can sign up for a newsletter where I tell about new releases and special promotions. Guaranteed to be spam-free. 
or just drop me an email at michael at michaelkingswood.com and I look forward to hearing from you. If you really like my stuff and feel like giving me a buck, drop by Patreon and sign up to be a patron. As always, if you like today's story, be sure to leave a review on your favorite online bookstore and share this podcast with all your friends. This production is copyright Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved.